Section 2 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Hand. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Chapter 2. Forgiveness, the Means, Not the End, Contemplated in the Gospel. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, and the whole object of the gospel is the fulfilling of them in our hearts. They describe the perfection of man's spiritual state. They describe his confiding, devoted dependence on the great root of the spiritual family and his fraternal sympathy with all the branches. When the love of the Creator is the dominant principle in the creature's heart, it keeps all the other principles and faculties and relations of the soul in their proper place. It is the true keystone of the arch, which gives strength by maintaining order. It is the principle which connects the creature with the spiritual system, enabling it to receive of the fullness of the Creator. The fall of this keystone from its place in man's heart was, and is, the fall of man from his place in the family of God. Self and the creature took the place of God, and each man became an independent individual, loving and desiring and approving things according as they affected himself, without regard to the will of God or the sympathies of the universal family. This is the fall and the sin and the misery of man, that the first and paramount relation has not the first and paramount place in his heart, and that self the principle of individuality has usurped that place and has thus cut off the blessed communication between God and man, which had been and could only be maintained through the channel of a supreme affection. And as this is the fall of man, so his restoration can be nothing else than the restoration of the love of God as the paramount principle in the heart, resulting in the due subordination of self and the creature under it. Any remedy which falls below this restoration falls below man's need. No pardon which leaves this undone is of any value to him. He needs no infliction from without to make him miserable, and it is not the removal of any outward infliction that can give him happiness. He must love God supremely. He must know that God is better than happiness and that sin is worse than sorrow. The love of God, not the desire of happiness, is the true keystone of the arch. He that will save his life shall lose it, and he that will lose his life for my sake shall find it. But if he loses his life not for Christ's sake, but with the hope of saving it, he is out of the order of the blessing. For the very object of the gospel is to displace self and the creature from the heart, and to restore the love of God to the supremacy which is its due thus restoring man to his place in the family of God. It affects this object by setting before us in Christ Jesus a true representation of the gracious character of God in relation to his rebellious creatures. Christ is the revelation of God in relation to sinners. The gospel tells us how full of love he is towards sinners, in all his feelings and in all his actions. It tells us of a love beyond utterance and conception, of his humbling himself even to the death of the cross for them, of his suffering for them on earth, of his reigning for them in heaven. And then it says that he who hath seen Jesus hath seen the Father. 
The gospel tells us that this is our God, the God who made us and with whom we have to do, that this is he from whom we have been turning away with fear or indifference, and who yet has all along been thus loving us and putting forth his love to us continually in every breath which we draw and in all the care and protection and support which we experience. And it tells us this, that we may feel it no constraint to love him supremely, to choose him for our portion, to depend on him with an absolute confidence, and thus to have our individual will subordinated to his will. Before Christ came into the world, God had promised that he should come, for no sooner had man fallen than he received an intimation of God's purpose of restoring him. There is something very striking in the form in which this first intimation of a deliverer was given, and it appears to me that much instruction as to the nature of the gospel may be obtained by examining its characteristic features. The intimation, as appears from the record in the third chapter of Genesis, was not directly addressed to our first parents themselves, but formed a part of the sentence pronounced in their hearing against the serpent who had deceived them. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The most prominent feature in this sentence is that the serpent's head was to be bruised by a descendant of the woman. This intimated to the human pair the purpose of God to raise up a champion of their race who should avenge their quarrel with the serpent and undo what he had done. Now as the work of the serpent had been to draw them away from the love of God, so the undoing of that work was to draw them back to the love of God. As the serpent's work had been to introduce sin and its consequences into the world, so the undoing of that work was to destroy sin and its consequences. This sentence of final destruction was pronounced on the serpent before Adam and Eve received their own sentence. As they stood trembling before their judge, they heard the sentence pronounced against their deceiver, in which his final defeat and the subversion of his plans by one of their own descendants were predicted. They thus learned that God had not abandoned them, and that his thoughts towards them were thoughts of compassion, even whilst pronouncing sentence upon them. They learned that although they were to be sent forth from paradise into the wilderness of the world, although they were to be taught the evil of sin by a life of suffering, yet God was even then preparing the means of their return. Would not this discovery wholly change the character of their feelings towards him? They had feared his wrath, they knew they had deserved it, and their consciences spoke terror. But they found that he pitied them, and that although they were to suffer, yet it was love which was appointing and measuring out the suffering." Would they not feel that the sting of the suffering was taken away? And would not the thought of God's compassionate care sweeten that cup of sorrow which their own hands had mixed? Would they not read in the compassion which gave this consolation an assurance of forgiveness? They had been hiding themselves amongst the trees of the garden from the face of their Creator, but now His presence would be to them a refuge and a protection, a sun and a shield. They had felt themselves to be banished from His family, and to be no longer his children. But this revelation of his final purpose proved that he was still their father, even while chastening them, and that they might be still his children, even under chastisement. Thus, the promise of the Savior did for our first parents, in the extent in which it was really apprehended by them, that which the Savior himself, when he came in the flesh, 
did for all who received him. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Faith in the promise gave them the feelings and the privileges of children and changed their dependence of necessity into a dependence of delighted choice. It taught them to accept their punishment in submission and hope, for they now knew that it was their father's good pleasure and purpose that sin and sorrow and death should one day be abolished and could therefore pray with confidence for the coming of that day, knowing their father's love and knowing that their petition was according to his will. I do not think that I have attributed to this first intimation of the Savior any effect on the minds and feelings of Adam and Eve beyond what is conceivable and probable in their circumstances. And now I shall endeavor to explain the use which I wish to make of this case. I have supposed that Adam and Eve would infer from the promise of the seed that God pitied them and had a gracious purpose of restoring them. I have also supposed that this judgment which they formed of the compassionate feelings of God towards them would necessarily inspire them with confidence towards Him and would lead them to regard Him as a Father who had forgiven them in His heart. Yet there was not a single word spoken by God on that occasion directly pronouncing a present or promising a future pardon. Therefore their confidence could only arise from a conviction that the promise of a deliverer was the proof of love which necessarily included forgiveness. The belief of the existence of a compassionate feeling towards them in the mind of God could not but inspire them with some degree of confidence, and when they knew that this compassion was actually occupied with a plan for undoing the evil which their fall had introduced, that confidence would rise nearer to assurance. From this proof of the existence of love, they would infer pardon as a necessary consequence. If they had not heard this intimation of a deliverance, or if they had heard without understanding, they would have had none of those feelings of confidence, and instead of exercising the privileges of sons and leaning on God's omnipotent love, they would have still shunned his presence and feared him as their enemy. And yet the mind of God and his purposes towards them would have been the same. Their want of faith would prevent any change of mind in themselves, and therefore would prevent their justification, that is, their being set right with God. And consequently, it would prevent their sanctification. For without confidence in God's good will towards them, they could not love him, nor do any of the works which proceed from love. Their forgiveness in the heart of God would have been as much a matter of fact as they now saw it to be. The difference between their receiving the testimony and their not receiving it was a difference affecting their own minds. It did not change the truth of the matter testified. God had not spoken to them of the necessity of faith in his testimony. He had not held out any promise to faith. But if the testimony was believed, it would necessarily do its own work. And if not believed, that work would as necessarily remain undone. Faith, according to its degree, must have done for Adam and Eve all that it ever did or can do for anyone, enabling them to see, though perhaps dimly, that it was his purpose to destroy sin and thus to save the sinner, and that they would have peace through this conviction. That is to say, they would be justified by faith. Now, I would ask the reader if he thinks it possible that God gave them any premium on account of their believing the intimation, that he pardoned them because they believed it. Surely not. Or that he pardoned them in believing it, as it is sometimes expressed. That is to say, that he bestowed on them belief and pardon at the same time. 
Surely the expression, they were justified by faith, when applied to them, would seem to signify simply this, that believing the reality of the love of God as expressed in the gracious purpose which he had intimated to them respecting the future deliverer, they took their forgiveness as included in it, and looked with confidence towards God. This, I believe, was their justification, if they were indeed justified, and this I believe to have been the justification of every child of man who ever has been justified, from that hour to this. For I am persuaded that no one ever receives or ever did receive anything in consequence of his belief of a truth other than the natural effect of that truth upon his mind. Doubtless, it will appear to many a strange sort of pardon which did not remit the punishment. For paradise remained barred, and the sentence of sorrow and of death remained unreversed. But God had spoken in their hearing of his gracious purposes respecting them, and that was forgiveness, all the forgiveness which they needed. And though his hand might still for a season be heavy on them, it was the hand of a father and for their good. And when we recollect the object of the gospel and the evil it was intended to remedy, we shall feel that this was precisely what was required. The hearts of the offenders were to be drawn back to the love of God for what he is and not for his gifts. It was part of his purpose to teach them to seek satisfaction in himself by stripping them of his gifts and by making them feel their own insufficiency, thus leading them back to a childlike dependence on himself. It was their own spirit of independence which had cut them off from God's family, which had extinguished in them the principle of spiritual life and had cast them down from heaven by shutting God out from their hearts. A pardon which did not restore the spirit of dependence would still have left them miserable outcasts. They had fallen by following their own selfish individual will rather than the good and holy will of the great father of the spiritual family. And now God in love made them feel the bitterness of their own will and of their own root. He allowed them to be surrounded with darkness and hopelessness, and then he presented to them his own holy will as the only light in the midst of the darkness, the only refuge in the midst of the hopelessness, and thus he invited their dependence and urged them to return, and he taught them, even by the terms of the promise, to regard his holy abhorrence of sin as the only foundation of their hope. For the promise was that the serpent's head should be bruised. That is to say that sin, self-will, and independence, as well as their consequences, should be rooted out. So long as these evil principles continue to be the chosen counselors of their hearts, such a promise could give them no comfort. But when they learned to look on sin, the essence of which is selfishness, as the enemy which had ruined them, then they would regard with thankfulness God's avowed determination to exterminate it. His holiness and his abhorrence of evil would be to them the pledges of their own future deliverance. It is not the least important or striking feature in this first intimation of the gospel that it is thus expressed rather in the form of a denunciation against sin than of direct pardon to the sinner. It marks that the only real mercy to the sinner must manifest itself in the destruction of sin that the love of God is essentially a consuming fire to sin, and that, in the dealings of God with regard to man, the restoration of happiness is less thought of than the restoration of holiness. No pardon can be worthy of God, or could possibly proceed from him, which does not agree with and strengthen the sanctions of holiness. But this is not all. There can be no peace for a moral being which does not rest on the foundations of moral truth. 
If Adam had felt his own moral sense compromised by his pardon, that pardon could never have given him peace. It could not have even given him the feeling of personal security. There would have remained a restless misgiving in his soul that all was not well, seeing that the God of holiness cannot cease to abhor sin. There can be no way of giving true peace to the sinner except by making God's abhorrence of sin the very ground of the sinner's hope. The agony of Adam's mind could not have arisen merely from the fear of consequences. A sense of sin must have been its chief element. And now from the sentence on the serpent he understood that evil was to be destroyed and right was to triumph. He saw that whatever might be the nature of God's purposes, the palliation of the guilt of sin did not enter into them as the head of the rebellion was to be crushed. He thus felt assured that God made no compromise of truth when he spoke hope to the sinner. The serpent's promised pardon was a mere impunity in sin. Ye shall not surely die. Its object was to encourage sin. God's pardon embraced the destruction of sin, and its object was to restore to holiness. We have need to beware of mistaking the serpent's hiss for the grace of God. The hope of impunity given by the serpent encouraged Adam to yield to the promptings of his earthly desires. The holy forgiveness of God encouraged and allured him to return back to God, not so much as a refuge from punishment as from sin and from weakness, from earthly desires and from the assaults of that spiritual enemy who had stolen his jewel from him. And although the word of God is sparing of information with regard to the effect of the promise upon him, Yet it is not inconsistent with the tenor of that information to hope and believe that he who was the first offender was also the first monument of saving grace, that with the promise he received the spirit of the promise and the consolation of the promise into his soul. For surely never was there a created being that stood in such need of a strong consolation. He had breathed the air of Eden and had been cast out of it, who has ever made such a shipwreck? He felt himself to be the author of a foul stain on the universe of God. He felt that his act was irretrievable, that he had opened a floodgate which he could not again shut, and through which a dark tide rolled in, overwhelming all the destinies which had been committed to his keeping. He saw this tide rolling in. He felt that it was his work and that he could not stop it. Verily he had need of a strong consolation. Whoever but him had his conscience burdened with the ruin of a world. He knew somewhat of the value of the light of God's countenance, and he knew somewhat of the horror of its loss. He had tasted the good and the evil, and he knew that his heart and his hand had done the deed which had severed all his descendants from the tree of life, and made them outcasts from God and wanderers through a homeless wilderness. And whereas he had been entrusted by God for their behoof, with the pearl of eternal life, he had cast it from him, and instead of it had bequeathed to them the bitter cup of sorrow and death, and a proneness to every crime, and an exposure to every misery. What a blow must Cain's murder have given to his heart, and what a fearful sense must it have given him of the living and growing and spreading reality of that curse which he himself had brought upon his offspring. And as his prophetic spirit went down that troubled stream of human life which was to issue from him, would not each drop lift up in the ear of his conscience an accusing voice against him? And as the various forms of outrage and calamity succeeded each other, would not his heart wither with the thought, 
this is my work? But the gospel was sent to comfort all that mourn, and surely it comforted this father of mourners. For the servant's doom revealed to him the love of God. This was the rest wherein his wearied spirit found rest, and this was the refreshing. This love was the love of him who was and is and shall be, the infinite in power and wisdom, of him who can make darkness light and crooked things straight. And he had pledged his faithful word that he would undo this evil which had entered into the world. Surely we may hope that Adam looked forward to the day of the Deliverer, and rejoiced to think that on that day God was to be glorified and man restored. When once he had learned this, he was in possession of the secret of the Lord, the secret of peace, for he would see the God of love in everything. He would see in every event a preparation for the coming of the Deliverer. In every affliction he would recognize the plan of restoration. He would feel how well his present sorrow suited with his spiritual needs. He had fallen by seeking good, not in God, but in the creature. God's gifts had hid God from his soul, instead of being used as channels of communion with him. He was now stripped of these gifts, but it was that he might learn that the giver was better than the gift, and that even in the absence of all gifts, God was himself an overflowing fullness, satiating every weary soul and replenishing every sorrowful soul. For God's best gifts are no portion for man. He is himself the portion of the soul, and so long as he is sought only for his gifts, he is himself unknown and unprized. And now I would say that everyone who in like manner understands the manifestation of love which was contained in that first promise, and which reached its full development in Christ, must have the same sense of his own personal place in the heart of God. For only consider... The gospel reveals to us the existence of a fund of divine love, containing in it a propitiation for all sin, and a promise to destroy all the works of the devil, the sin, the misery, the death which he has introduced. And this fund is general to the whole race. Every individual has a property in it, of the same kind that he has in the common air and light of this world, which he appropriates and uses simply by opening his mouth or his eyes. Is it not clear that as soon as anyone really knows that such a fund exists, and that it is indeed the gift of God to the world, and the common property of all the individuals in the world, just as the natural air or light is, he will immediately infer his own particular interest in it, and enter into the enjoyment of it, and he will make that blessed discovery which no tongue can rightly describe, and no mere intelligence can rightly conceive even that he himself has a possession, an inalienable and everlasting possession in the heart of God? There is another feature in this first intimation of the gospel which merits consideration, and that is its generality. It strikes at the root of the selfishness and narrow individuality of will which has taken possession of that place in man's heart which ought to be filled by the wide will of God and by sympathy with the whole spiritual family. Its consolation is not a selfish consolation. It calls on men to share in higher and more extended interests than their own, and in accordance with this, each is led to infer his own pardon and his own individual place in God's heart, not from any special declaration to himself, but from a manifestation of the holy love of God to the world. 
When I consider this important feature of the first promise, I cannot help thinking that the expectation of the restitution of all things occupies a much less space in the usual preaching of the gospel and in the thoughts of men than it ought to do. It is the chief feature of that gospel which was preached to Adam, and it is bequeathed to the church in the last words of inspiration as an enduring consolation and expectation. Behold, I come quickly. The statements of the gospel in our days relate too exclusively to what is past and to the individual salvation of each believer. Of course, it is impossible altogether to separate the doctrine of Christ's sacrifice from its general and future results. But these results seem to me not brought forward with such emphasis as they are in the Bible. I do not speak of the detail of these results, nor of the particular fulfillment of prophecies supposed to refer to the last times, but I speak of a fixed and longing expectation of the accomplishment of those promises which announce the final triumph of the Messiah, the establishment of his reign upon earth, the manifestation of the sons of God, and the full development of all those high privileges which arise out of their union with their divine head. If selfishness be really one of the chief elements in the fall of man, it might be expected that the divinely bestowed medicine for sick souls should contain an ingredient specially fitted to counteract and remove that selfishness. And such an ingredient we find in the universality both of the declaration and purpose of the gospel a feature which must necessarily impress its own character on the hope of every one who rests upon it. For if this conception of the gospel is true, the first hope which any man can arrive at with regard to his own personal acceptance with God must be drawn from the great general manifestation of divine love, directed to the destruction of evil and to the restoration of the ruined race. The individual drops are thus merged in the ocean, and self is lost in the liberty the universality, the impartiality of heaven. What Adam was thus taught to expect, we yet look forward to. The champion has appeared, but evil is still spread over the earth, and the serpent's crested and uncrushed head still towers above it. Yet the work is going on, which will accomplish the great prediction on which the destiny of our race hangs. We know that the government of the world is in the hand of God, and therefore we may rest assured that there is not a single link in the apparently perplexed chain of human events which does not connect with and guide to the coming glory. And we may rest assured not only that all the histories of the kingdoms of the world are under the influence of an unfelt but irresistible control, preparing the way for that kingdom which cannot be moved, but also that personal events as well as national private as well as public, are all under the same mandate, commissioned to lead on to the same great consummation. This truth gives a seriousness and a dignity to everything. It banishes littleness from life because it connects all life with the glory of God and the eradication of evil. It leads us on, as under this shadow of everlasting and omnipotent love, in the faith of which we may rest in peace until all calamities be overpassed. When the eye of the Spirit is thus opened to see God working, in everything and by everything, to bring on the reign of righteousness, we shall feel ourselves invited to the blessed privilege of entering into the purposes of God, of sympathizing with the everlasting counsels of His grace, of rejoicing in their assured fulfillment, and of being fellow workers with Him in every action of life. These actions may appear small and insignificant in the world's judgment, 
but the believer knows that it is not in vain that the ruler of the universe has called him to do all things to the glory of God. These are animating thoughts for poor wanderers in the wilderness who are listening to the Savior's voice. For them, the fall, with all its sin and misery and darkness, will soon pass away, having served, under the control of him who bringeth good out of evil, to glorify the divine attributes, and to introduce a high and holy and happy order of things, higher and holier and happier than that which Adam lost, because founded on a nearer relation with God and a fuller manifestation of his character. Men are disposed to imagine that if pardon be made conditional, it will be more effectual as a stimulus to exertion. But the answer to this objection is that Christian obedience does not consist in doing certain actions and abstaining from others without regard to the motive from which this conduct proceeds. Christian obedience consists in holy love to God in habitual exercise. Now it is quite evident that no hope of reward could produce this kind of obedience. The heart cannot be induced to love by anything except by the real or apparent lovableness of the object. A man might do or suffer much in order to obtain pardon of sin, but this is not what God requires. He requires the heart. He requires a generous, disinterested love, which longs to express itself in every possible act of devotedness, counting all little and vile in comparison of the worthiness of him whom it desires to please. The obedience which God asks is the free obedience of a child, not a mercenary negotiation for deliverance from punishment. True obedience can only be rendered by a spirit which rejoices that God desires its love, both because it recognizes in this demand a father's heart, and because it feels that amidst all its failures and all its weaknesses, it yet has love to give. It is impossible that such loving obedience as this can exist in a heart which feels the weight of unpardoned sin and regards God as an offended governor and condemning judge. For an assurance of forgiveness must precede confidence, and what love can there be without confidence? Is it not reasonable, then, to think that he who demands the love of the heart should begin by removing that fear of condemnation which would prevent love? But the gospel is much more than a mere putting away of past transgression. Nothing short of a manifestation of God can be a true gospel to sinners. If our hearts were attracted to anything else than God himself, if remission of penalty were the chief attraction, we should still be out of our place in the spiritual system. God is the center of that system. There can be no other. The pardon of the gospel is just the manifestation of the divine character in relation to sinners. In relation to his sinless and happy creatures, his character is holy complacency. But in relation to those who are sinful and weak and miserable, it is holy compassion. Forgiveness, therefore, is the prominent feature in the gospel. It is God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Forgiveness is a permanent condition of the heart of God. When through Christ Jesus we learn to apprehend this, all self-pleasing thoughts of personal merit are extinguished. What have we done to him or for him who hath done this for us? We have repaid him by preferring the least of his gifts to himself, by turning a deaf ear to his condescending in variations of fatherly kindness, and by offering him the reluctant service of our hands and the ceremonial of our tongues as an adequate return for his heart's love. If we know this love, we shall feel annihilated by it. 
We have nothing to give in return, which is not despicable when considered as payment. But God asks no payment. He asks but the filial trust of the creature who is the work of his own hands, as that in which he delights, and as that in which the good and the happiness of the creature consist. He has dearly earned our gratitude and our confidence, and these feelings, when wrought into the heart, put us in our proper place towards him. Affectionate dependence on the Creator is the spiritual health of the creature, as averseness and independence are his spiritual disease. Men are very apt to consider sin as consisting merely in this or that particular action. The old philosophers taught that virtue is the mean between two extremes. Thus, for example, that the virtue of generosity is the mean between the vices of prodigality and avarice, courage the mean between rashness and timidity, and so of the rest, thus making the difference between virtue and vice to lie merely in the degree, not in the kind. But the word of God teaches another sort of morals. According to it, sin consists in the absence of the love of God from the heart as the dominant principle so that sin is not so much an act as a manner of being. It is not necessary to go to the expense of an action in order to sin. The habitual state of most minds, of all minds indeed naturally, even in their most quiescent form, is sin. That is to say, the love of God is not dominant in them. The centripetal force constitutes an element in every line which the planet moves in its orbit. Were the influence of this force to be suspended, we should not think of reckoning the number of aberrations which the planet might make in its ungoverned career. We should say that its whole manner of being, severed from the solar influence, was one continued and radical aberration. In like manner, the soul ought to feel the love of God as a governing element along the whole course of its existence. Every movement of thought and feeling and desire ought to contain it as an essential part of its nature. When this principle is wanting, we need not reckon the moral aberrations which the spirit makes. Its whole existence is an aberration. It is cut off from the spiritual system of the universe. It has lost its gravitation. In such a state of things, it is evident that a pardon which did not bring back the wanderer and restore his lost gravitation would be of no use to him. Until his gravitation is recovered, he is a blot on the creation. Love to God is the gravitation of the soul, and it is restored by the apprehension of his mind and will as revealed in Christ Jesus. A faith which does not restore spiritual gravitation is useless, and that only is true gravitation which keeps the soul in its orbit. The movement of the soul along the path of duty, under the influence of holy love to God, constitutes what in Scripture are called good works. Good works are works which proceed from true principles. The external form of an action cannot alone determine whether it be a good work or not. Its usefulness to others may be determined by its external form, but its moral worth depends on the moral spring from which it flows. Good works, then, are properly healthy works, works proceeding from a living principle. Healthy bodily actions can only proceed from healthy bodily principles, and healthy spiritual actions can proceed only from healthy spiritual principles. All efforts to do good apart from that life from above which our Lord proclaimed it to Nicodemus are in Scripture called dead works. A man who has lost his health does not recover it again by any endeavor to perform healthy bodily actions, 
for of these his bad health renders him incapable, in which incapacity, indeed, his bad health consists. But by the use of some remedial system, generally involving much self-denial, and as health returns, its proper and natural actions return along with it. Health is not produced by these actions, but it produces them and is strengthened by them. Physical enjoyment consists in these healthful actions. They are the spontaneous language of physical health. They constitute the music, as it were, which results from the organ being well-tuned. It is the same thing with the actions of the soul. Spiritual health is not acquired by good actions, but it is followed by them and strengthened by them. They also are music, sweet music. And, oh, were these spirits of ours, with their thousand strings but rightly tuned, what a swell of high and lovely song would issue from them. A song of holy joy and praise, commencing even here, and still rising upwards, until it blended with the full harmony of that choir which surrounds the throne of God. End of section 2